I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Uh, Today... We have a little bit of a ghost thing, but that's very late in the thing, uh, in the story. The person that we are talking about today has a life story that is often told in what really comes down to sort of a sloppy shorthand. It goes like this in the way you will often hear it. She went to Los Angeles to become an actress. She failed and then became very desperate. That is not a really accurate picture of Peg Entwistle or her life at all. No. Um, But her name is sort of like a touchstone name that people will use, and people kind of know what happened and how her life ended, but they really get that version of her story, and it's not accurate at all. So today we're going to talk about her life and her career, and this will serve as a little bit of an on-ramp into our spooky Halloween topics, because there is a tiny bit of paranormal stuff at the very, very end. Uh, One note that I wanted to include, just in case we have any uh, peg aficionados among our listeners, she went by Babs with her family, although it is unclear how she got that nickname. Her name was in no way Barbara, which is normally the person that would get the nickname Babs. Uh, But we are not using that nickname in this episode just to keep things from getting confusing. So just in case there are any peg fans out there who are wondering why we are not calling her that, particularly during her childhood before she started going by peg, After seeing a production of the stage play Pego My Heart as a preteen, that is why we're just doing it for a little bit of clarity and to keep things smoother, especially because there are a lot of names that come up in this. If we can pare those down and keep it simpler, so much the better. 
Also, just a heads up that this episode includes a person taking their own life. Uh, also, some discussion of domestic violence, if those are sensitive topics for you. This one might be one that you uh, skip, which is just fine. But other than that, we are going to get right into Peg Entwistle. Peg was born Millicent Lillian Entwistle on February 5th, 1908 in Port Talbot, Wales. Her parents weren't Welsh, but English. Robert and Emily Entwistle had gone to Wales for their child's birth so that Emily's mother, Caroline, could be their midwife. After Emily and the baby were well enough to travel again, the Entwistles made their way back home to West Kensington in London. The Entwistles ran a public house that served food and alcohol, but the family also had roots in the theater. Robert and his brother Charles were both actors. Robert also designed sets. And Peg's uncle Charles, who went by Enti as a nickname, was the more successful of the two in this regard, both as an actor and as a manager, working on behalf of actors and theater owners in their business dealings. And in 1906, Charles Entwistle made his way to the U.S. to work for producer Charles Froman. And from that point on, he really had a pretty steady stream of business and some anchor in New York. Two years after Peg was born, Robert and Emily abruptly divorced, and we really don't know why. Robert got sole custody of Peg, though, although both sides of the family remained very involved in her upbringing. Yeah, Emily's involvement in her life was minimized as much as possible, but both Emily's relatives and Robert's were involved in uh, Peg's childhood. And in 1911, Peg's uncle Charles met an actress named Jane Ross during a production of a play called Hobson's Choice. And the two were married the following year and made Jane's Santa Monica house their home together initially. When Charles brought his new wife to London in 1913 to meet his family, he also brought an offer to Peg's father, Robert. Broadway producer Charles Froman, who Charles Entwistle had been working with at various points at that point, was willing to hire Robert as a stage manager so that he and his daughter could move to New York. There is some confusion in the historical record about exactly when Peg arrived in New York as a girl. It had long been reported that she made her way across the Atlantic in 1916, and her name is on a passenger manifest for the SS Philadelphia for 1916. But she was definitely already in New York as early as 1913, based on entries in Jane Ross's diary. On July 29, 1914, Robert married Jane Ross's sister, Loretta. Charles Entwistle and Jane Ross, meanwhile, had moved to California to see what the motion picture industry had to offer. And Charles worked in a variety of jobs in California, both in front of and behind the camera. I think uh, his total career, he made something like 50 movies at various points. Uh, But Robert was still working both off and on stage in New York. He was acting in steady but minor roles. He was still doing things like stage managing and handling tickets. So he, Loretta, and Peg remained on the East Coast. As a sort of aside for just some historical context, in 1915, when the Lusitania was torpedoed by a German U-boat, one of the casualties was Charles Froman, who still employed both of the Entwistle brothers. His company continued after his death, and both Robert and Charles continued their relationships with the company. And it's uh, probably not surprising that a child that was raised around so many theater folks found herself drawn to the stage, and that was exactly what happened with Peg. In 1917, when Peg was nine, the family had moved from a home in the Bronx to one on West 88th Street, and the closer proximity to Broadway gave her ample opportunities to visit her father's work and watch shows as often as she could convince some adult in the family to take her. And she would memorize her father's old scripts from previous productions, and then she would mount her own stagings of those shows in the family home. 
Peg's brother Milton was born on September 27, 1917, and Loretta was pregnant again a year later. This expanding family caused Robert to rethink his life in the theater. He'd never been particularly passionate about it. He had just sort of fallen into it, and it was becoming less and less stable as a business. So after finishing up a brief run of a play called Humpty Dumpty in 1918, Robert left the theater. He opened a stationery shop at the corner of East 54th and Madison Avenue that was just called Box Mart. That sounds kind of generic, but Robert had learned how to make exquisite custom gift boxes years earlier, and that, coupled with a very high-end offering of stationery, made the shop really popular, and he had a very wealthy clientele. Yeah, his uh, box... His custom boxes, uh, you had to have an appointment to meet with him to get one made. And I read a description of some of them, and it sounds like they were almost like an event to open up in and of themselves. Like they would sometimes open up in layers and have sort of little tableau that would be related to what the gift was inside. And they sounded incredibly intricate and beautiful uh, and like something anybody would be delighted to open. Uh, In 1918, Peg joined the American Junior Red Cross, and she assisted primarily with the Friendship Boxes Project, which assembled kits of blankets, medicine, food, and other basics for war refugees. And she also fundraised for the organization. She was at this time also attending parochial school at St. Agnes Academy. And with the armistice of November 11th, 1918, Peg's Junior Red Cross duties pretty much ended. And just a few months later, on March 18th of 1919, Peg got a new baby brother, Bobby, when he was born. Although Robert Entwistle had left the theater, the stage really still captivated Peg. She starred in her first school play as Peter Pan when she was 12. She also enjoyed a high degree of access to the world of theater, thanks to frequent visits from her Aunt Jane and Uncle Charles. Charles continued to manage actors in New York while also pursuing a career in California. So Peg got to meet a lot of Broadway's most popular performers and ask them about their work. For a teenager interested in theater, this was like an insider's acting school. Yeah, it would be like if you just could, like, go wander onto movie sets as a kid and, like, talk to all of the leads and be like, oh, really? What do you do do when you have to do a scene like this? And then, oh, sorry, I'm going to go over to this other lot where my uncle also is managing somebody very famous and talk to them about their process. (laughs) I can't imagine how incredibly cool that must have been. Yeah, as as a theater teen, yeah. Oh, Heaven. So much envy. But just as Peg was becoming really focused on what she was starting to see as her career destiny, the family experienced a sudden loss when Loretta Entwistle, Peg's stepmother, died of bacterial meningitis in April 1921. And she was only 35 when she died. Peg traveled with her father and brothers to Cincinnati, Ohio, to bury Loretta near her family. And they stayed there in Ohio for several weeks. And while Peg was very, very close to Loretta, she, in fact, would refer to her as her mother and kind of left Emily out of the picture. Uh, And while this loss was completely devastating, it also changed Peg's home life in a way that really impacted her dream of acting. Because she was, as a teenage daughter at that time, expected to take on the care of her younger brothers. Another huge emotional blow followed a year later when Peg's father was badly injured in a hit-and-run accident while walking home from his shop. That happened in November of 1922. After a long hospital stay, during which he seemed to be improving, he died suddenly of a brain hemorrhage on December 19th. 
So though his death was somewhat unexpected because he had been recovering, the accident had prompted Robert to dictate his will while he was in the hospital. And he had stated in it that Charles and Jane were to take care of the children in the event that anything happened to him, with very specific language that even though Peg's biological mother was still alive, that he did not want her to have custody of Peg. Boxmart, his successful store, was bequeathed in two parts— Half of it went to his brother Charles, and half of it went to a woman named Marion Gressing, who had been Robert's assistant in the business pretty much from the time he started it. And Charles sold his interest in the store to Marion immediately, and she just took it over. After Robert's death, Jane quit her acting career to be a full-time mother to Peg, Milton, and Bobby. They all moved to Ohio to be closer to Jane and Loretta's family. But after Bobby got a bad bacterial ear infection, doctors suggested that he might do better in a warm climate. While Charles had more or less left California and gone back to managing Broadway actors, Los Angeles beckoned to the Entwistles. Charles preferred the theater to film, but theater jobs in L.A. were sparse. So once again, he tried to make a go of it in the movie business. And we're going to talk about the family's relocation to the West Coast in just a moment. But first, we're going to pause and have a little sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. 
It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. So when the Entwistles got to Los Angeles and settled in, Bobby was still too sick to go to school, and Milton went to public school. But Peg was really uncomfortable with the idea of public school. She was still grieving from the loss of both of her parents, and she feared that she would be seen as an outsider and that she would have difficulty connecting to other girls her age. But a more appealing option presented itself, and that was the Bishop's School, which was a private girls' boarding academy in La Jolla, which initially was a really good fit for Peg. She spent the summer after her first year of school in Los Angeles with Jane and Charles. Charles bought a fixer-upper and started renovating it. And it turned out that he was still working in New York a good deal. There were opportunities there that were a lot more plentiful than they were in Los Angeles, so he traveled a lot back and forth. Yeah, I feel like this whole family really lives a bi-coastal life throughout their, their years. Uh, Peg returned to the Bishop School for the 1924 school year, but her enthusiasm that she had initially had for this boarding school really waned. She had grown tired of its strict schedule, and she was once again thinking about how she really wanted a life in the theater, and she just knew she did not want to go back to the girls' academy. So she was still firmly against public school, uh, so her uncle, instead of making her go either to the private school or to public school, hired her a private tutor. When she was 16, Peg enrolled at the Hollywood Theater Community School to take acting lessons. Because of her childhood spent attending all these Broadway productions and soaking up the atmosphere and culture backstage, she was way ahead of her fellow students. Her teacher suggested to Jane Ross that Peg get an agent and go ahead and get into the film business, but Peg really only wanted to do theater. In 1925, Peg's uncle Charles used his connections to give Peg basically everything she ever could have dreamed. The New York Theater Guild was opening a school called the Theater Guild School of Acting, and it offered a program that was intended to weed out the best of the many hopefuls that were arriving in New York hoping to make a career on the stage, and then form that small group that made it through the whole program into a theater company. And Peg, uh, because Charles had done a little work behind the scenes, was invited to attend. So she finished her courses at the Hollywood Theater Community School, and then in June of 1925, she and Charles headed east together. But shortly after arriving in New York, Peg met Henry Jewett at a party uh, full of her her uncle's theater friends. The Henry Jewett Players was already a well-established acting troupe in Boston, and Jewett was so impressed with Peg that he asked her to join. 
She would be acting professionally, and she would start earning money immediately rather than waiting for the Theater Guild program to play out and see if she was in the top tier of talent that would be offered contracts at the end of the program. So she took that offer, abruptly changing course from New York to Boston for the debut season of the Boston Repertory Theater. When Jewett handed her a list of the 22 plays he was considering for the season for her to memorize, she already knew 21 of them by heart. Yeah, allegedly the story goes that he handed her this list. She said, oh, I already know all but one of these. And he kind of looked to people that knew her like, is she just showboating? And they were like, oh, no, she knows him. (laughs) Um, She stayed in New York with her Uncle Charles until August. And then she went back home to Hollywood briefly for a visit and then back to New York where she awaited Jewett's call that her Boston job was to begin. And in the meantime, her uncle's friend, Walter Hampton, who was a successful actor and theater manager, arranged for Peg to have a walk-on role in a Broadway production of Hamlet starring Ethel Barrymore. And uh, Peg could not be credited or paid for this because of her contract with Hewitt, but it was a really exciting and fun opportunity, so she jumped at the chance. Just two weeks later, she was settling into her new life in Boston and rehearsing for her first credited minor role on the professional stage. That was as a maid in the comedy of manners, The Rivals. While the schedule of working at a repertory theater was grueling, rehearsing some shows during the day and performing in others at night, giving 12 shows a week every week for eight months. Peg loved it, and critics and audiences loved her. Peg's performance as Hedvig in Heinrich Ibsen's The Wild Duck that season was often referenced by Betty Davis as the thing that inspired her to become an actress. Yeah, Betty Davis had apparently seen her in this repertory and was blown away and was like, I want to do what she does, uh, which is a pretty cool uh, feather in her cap in the, the annals of history. And when that season was over, Peg, who at that point had kind of become the darling of the Boston theater scene, once again turned her eyes to her first love, which was Broadway. And her opportunity came rather suddenly and in an unexpected way, very much like her contract with Jewett had. So she ended up as a last-minute replacement for a minor role in The Man from Toronto when she ran into one of its actors randomly, and he mentioned that they had an open slot Uh, that one of their actresses hadn't worked out and they needed a pretty blonde with an English accent, which basically was Peg. Uh, She thought he might just be hitting on her, but it did turn out to be a legit offer. The just-off-Broadway play was not especially well-received. Peg got one nice mention, but she really wasn't even noted in most of the reviews. She was cast next in The Hometowners, which ran for 70 shows, a block off-Broadway, and paid well. She was written up in the New York Times, and critics praised her work in it. But she got her big Broadway break in a play called Tommy, which was produced by George C. Tyler. It rehearsed briefly before test stagings in Atlantic City and Boston, and then it opened at the Gaiety Theater on Broadway on January 10th of 1927. The reviews initially were just okay, not great. It was kind of like, this is a fine show. But the play became a huge success, due in part to the fact that it was wholesome at a time when some shows were being shut down due to inappropriate content. Peg was making $500 a week, plus a cut of the box office. When the Gaiety Theater suddenly switched over to become a movie house, the production of Tommy moved four blocks to the Elting Theater, which had more seats, which always sold, and larger dressing rooms. By the time Tommy closed at the end of July, it had become one of the most successful shows of the year. That is also a nice accidental crossover to our episode on Julian Elting. Yep. (laughs) It all connects. Um, And while Tommy had been making its successful run, 
Peg had met the handsome and charming actor Robert Lee Keith. He was 10 years older than she was, and Peg and Robert married on April 18, 1927, after what the press reported as a four-day courtship. Although in a letter to her family, Peg indicated that she had met him a year before their wedding. They did not actually see each other in the time between then and the Thursday where she met him a second time, just days before saying I do in a very brief courthouse wedding in Port Chester, New York. So really, their courtship was only four days long, but she maybe had met him a year prior briefly. Uh, But then they had to hustle back to Broadway because Peg's show was running and Robert had just opened a new play that he had written. We will talk about some of the realities of this marriage in just a moment after we hear from one of the sponsors that keeps the show going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. 
In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. So when we left off, we mentioned Peg and Robert Keith's sudden whirlwind romance and marriage. And it sounds really romantic and exciting, perhaps. I always want to root for those crazy kids that do crazy things like that. But this was a really terrible mistake on Peg's part. Uh, For one, Robert had never disclosed to her that he had actually been married before and that he had a child from that marriage. His mother and best friend, who had also signed the marriage certificate, had also kept that information from Peg. And by the way, Robert's son was actor Brian Keith, who went on to star in a variety of roles in film and television, including The Parent Trap and the series Family Affair, which I desperately loved as a kid. It's like four days is an incredibly short courtship, but that's an important piece of information to just not (laughs) give up in that four days. Well, and it sounds like because Peg was pretty open in the press and just socially that she did not want kids, she did not enjoy kids, she did not want a family because she thought it would detract from her career, which was the only thing she cared about. So there is sort of a general suspicion that he willfully kept it from her knowing she would never have married him. Yeah. Then she commented on a photo of a young boy in her new husband's apartment, and his mother said it was Robert's child. Peg naturally was shocked and humiliated because, as Holly just said, she did not like children. For another thing, it was instantly clear that her new spouse was comfortable keeping really important things from her. The entire foundation of this marriage was basically faulty. She kept her cool about it, though, and it was partly because she knew if she made a big fuss over the situation, it would create bad PR for her. She didn't want to taint her career because she was becoming a real success on the Broadway stage. Yeah, she wanted no scandals. Um, But things were unfortunately even more complicated than she knew even after the reveal of this child. Robert was actually wanted by the police for failing to make his alimony payments. And he also had a drinking problem. And he asked Peg for money repeatedly, which she would give him, but he would always squander it rather than paying his debts and making those alimony payments that he had been missing. Peg also got pregnant during the early days of their marriage, but she opted to terminate the pregnancy. And she and Robert, despite being two of the most popular actors in the New York theater, seemed to constantly have financial problems. After Tommy closed, and as her personal life was really unraveling, Peg starred in the play The Uninvited Guest, which was panned by critics, even though she was written up as better than the material she was working with. The play had a really short run, and afterward, Peg did not work for months from October 1927 to April 1928. She had no gigs. And after many auditions, Peg lost a juicy role that she desperately wanted in the stage adaptation of Serena Blandish. Ruth Gordon was the person who was cast in that role. 
Then the Theater Guild, which Peg had always wanted to be part of despite leaving their training program for Boston, signed both Peg and Robert to their touring company. That was on the anniversary of their one-year wedding anniversary. Yeah, they had actually made the deal several days before, and Peg asked if they could wait until the day of their anniversary so it would just feel like a very special day. And so Peg and Robert seemed, despite the messy and deceitful start of their marriage and their financial difficulties, to actually get along for a while. Peg was determined to make their marriage work, and they really did like each other. And once they were signed with the Guild, she seemed to feel as though she had truly arrived and that things were turning around. The money wasn't going to start rolling in until the fall when they actually started the job that they had been contracted for, but better times were clearly on the horizon. But then, in August, Peg and Robert were eating together in a restaurant when a detective came up to the table and told Robert he had to pay $1,000 in back alimony or he would be taken into custody. Neither he nor Peg had the money, and Peg was horrified that Robert hadn't been using the money she had been giving him for his alimony. She was embarrassed to be put in this position in public, and they had to ask their new bosses at the Guild for a loan to get Robert released from custody. They got past this incident, although Peg was the one who paid back the loan from her pay, not Robert. And then they went on touring starting in the fall. And once they were on the road, uh, the couple's relationship really rapidly declined. Robert's drinking got far worse, and one night he assaulted Peg in their hotel room. She had been in bed, and he grabbed her by the hair and pulled her out of bed and then threw her on the ground. And then he picked her up again by her hair, and this sort of continued in this cycle. The hotel detective responded to her screams, and she packed all of her things and moved to another room. She was pretty much done at that point. Robert sobered up and begged her to take him back and forgive him, and she did, but the behavior continued. But when the Guild's management found out about all of this, Robert was fired and he was blacklisted on Broadway. Peg, however, continued with the company for the rest of the tour. Robert moved out to California to find work, and when the Guild's tour got to Los Angeles, he showed up at the theater after a matinee performance. He was drunk and he was barred from entering. But this also trapped all of the actors inside while he ranted outside. Peg spoke to Robert at the door, promised to meet him the following day on the condition that he be sober, and then called an attorney to begin a legal separation. The following day, she met him, as promised, and told him that their marriage was over. Peg was quickly granted the divorce that she sought, and she felt that she was free afterward. Yeah, she basically testified and said, like, he lied to me from day one, he abused me, this is not a real marriage. And they were like, yes, we all agree. Uh, The tour continued and even flourished after all of this madness, but as it wound down... Peg kind of found herself the victim of Robert's bad behavior in another way. Her contract with the Guild was not renewed, even though she had done a phenomenal job, because of fears that Robert might once again show up and make a scene. And those divorce proceedings had been covered in the papers, and the Theater Guild just did not want any more bad press like that. So Peg decided that she would head to Hollywood and spend some time with her family. But by the end of the summer of 1929, She was really struggling. She was 21. She had had success and then had this big mess erupt, and she was depressed, and she was unsure of her future. Walter Hampton offered her a ray of light when he asked her to join his tour of Sherlock Holmes. It was going to be actor William Gillette's last tour. He was coming out of retirement to do it, and it opened on November 15, 1929 in Springfield, Massachusetts. The tour lasted for seven months, and it was a massive success. 
It wrapped up in New Jersey on May 12, 1930. Peg was then invited to join the Lakewood Players in residence at the Colony Resort that summer. She spent the fall visiting her family in California and returned to New York at the beginning of 1931. She immediately starred in the play She Means Business, which only ran for eight shows. But the Theater Guild hired her next for a production of Getting Married, which opened in March. And it went fairly well, but this was her last show with the Guild, as the scandal of Robert's abuse still lingered within the company. But per their contract rules, Peg had to be cast in one of their New York shows after fulfilling her touring dates. So it wasn't like they really wanted her, but they legally had to hire her for something. She spent the summer of 1931 back with the Lakewood Players and had a season of well-regarded performances at the resort. Among them had been a production of a play called Just to Remind You, which was then staged for Broadway. Peg was asked to be in the Broadway show, so she cut her summer season with Lakewood shorts to take the job. But New York audiences didn't love the show the way the resort crowd had, and it lasted for just a dozen performances before being pulled. After a few months with no work, uh, Peg played Amy in a revival of Little Women. But then she moved on to a show that was called Son of Satan, which was actually canceled in January 1932 before it even opened. It just was plagued by problems. Peg was then cast in Alice Sit by the Fire, which was written by Peter Pan author J.M. Barry, And it starred stage legend Lorette Taylor, who was lauded by critics, but she had a drinking problem, which led to canceled shows and ultimately the cancellation of the entire run, which had no shortage of paying customers, but they just couldn't keep it going with any sort of consistency. And that was the last Broadway play of Peg Entwistle's career. She once again crossed the country to Hollywood to appear in an L.A. production of The Mad Hopes in May of 1932. I was alongside Billy Burke, who people mostly know as Glinda the Good Witch, and Humphrey Bogart. The theater at the Los Angeles premiere overflowed with viewers forced to stand on opening night. It had 1,600 seats, but there were 2,000 people in the audience. All three of the stars got great reviews, and a Broadway run of the show was planned. But then it hit a problem when Billy Burke was cast in a film in Los Angeles and had to pull out of the stage play. Peg was soon offered a role in a film as well, called 13 Women at RKO Pictures. And she had thought originally that she was going to be in the same picture as Billy Burke, which was a bill of divorcement. But the role that she was up for ended up being given to Katherine Hepburn. And so Peg's one-picture contract, which actually made her one of the radio picture starlets, was used instead to cast her for the 13 Women. And the film features a woman plotting to murder 12 of her former schoolmates using supernatural powers. This movie was a mess because it ended up being heavily edited and 12 minutes of Peg's screen time were cut and that left her in it for only four minutes and change. Her character's storyline had involved a lesbian relationship and it was all removed from the final film. 13 Women was made before the 1934 Hays Code that dictated the bounds of morality that can be portrayed in film, but it still fell victim to mounting tensions between studios and the Studio Relations Committee about propriety. In the end, there were only eight women in the film, although it kept the original title of 13 Women. Shortly after that, on September 14th, Peg and two other actresses, Phyllis Frazier and Harriet Hagman, were dropped from the RKO starlets. On September 16th, 1932, Peg told her aunt and uncle that she was going out to buy a book at the drugstore and then to meet up with some friends. And she did not come home that night. 
But her family wasn't worried. She had stayed over at friends' houses before when they had all been out late. She was just meeting up with girlfriends and hanging out. But she also didn't come home the next day either. And Jane Ross started calling her friends to find out that none of them had seen her. On Sunday, September 18th, a woman phoned the Los Angeles Police Department and said that she had been hiking near the Hollywoodland sign when she saw a woman's jacket. And not far away, there was a purse with what appeared to be a suicide note. She also thought she could see a body down below the sign on the mountain. The woman told the officer on the call that she did not want any publicity and that she had wrapped up the items and placed them outside the Hollywood police station. The caller hung up before giving a name. The Hollywood precinct was called and the bundle mentioned by the anonymous caller was found outside. The Hollywood Land sign on Mount Lee in the Santa Monica Mountains was erected in 1923. Peg was actually 15 then, and she and her brothers had watched its massive letters get hauled up their street on the way to be installed. And the sign was intended initially as a way to advertise a real estate development in the Hollywood Hills. The letters, each 30 feet wide and 43 feet tall, were lighted by 4,000 bulbs, and they were intended to stay in place for a year and a half, because that was how long the developers expected it to take to sell all of the available lots. And then they just planned to take down the sign. The police investigated. They recovered the body of the young woman and determined she had climbed a ladder that was behind the H of the sign and then jumped from the top of the letter. She wasn't identified by the police, though. Her suicide note and a brief description were published in the paper with the hopes that they would figure out her identity based on that. When Jane Ross read the description and the information about the note, which was signed P.E., she knew that it was Peg, Charles made the formal identification. And almost immediately, headlines and articles started to rewrite Peg as this wannabe film star who had failed, ignoring completely that she had been a successful stage actress. And additionally, rumors circulated that in a fit of desperation, she had posed for nude photos shortly before her death and then regretted it, possibly leading to her state of mind. But while she did have a series of professional photos taken shortly before her death, there's no evidence that any of them were at all racy. A semi-nude photo of a model who was not Peg Entwistle was incorrectly labeled as her in a book about Hollywood, and that has led to ongoing muddling of this particular matter. Peg's funeral was held on September 20th. Her body was cremated, and her ashes were interred back in Ohio in January of 1933. And since her death, Peg has taken on another role, at least in the public consciousness, that of a ghost who haunts the Hollywood sign. In the 86 years since Peg's death, numerous reports of an apparition in 1930s apparel have been made, generally all centered around the Hollywood sign or the surrounding Hollywood Hills. Some people allegedly also smell gardenias, which was the scent of Peg's favorite perfume. The H in the Hollywood sign fell in 1949, fueling speculation that it was the work of Peg's spirit. But really, though, that sign, as you recall, wasn't meant to last even two years, let alone the 25 that it had up to that point. And after the letter fell, the Department of Parks and Recreation turned responsibility for the sign over to the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce. The H was repaired... The land was removed to make the landmark represent the city rather than the residential development that had instigated its installation. Uh, And since then, like in the 70s, the entire sign was replaced. And of course, there's ongoing debate about Peg's death, whether it was really a suicide and who this mystery woman was who called the police. To some degree, at least in the minds of some people, it remains a history mystery. 
Yeah, the coroner's finding didn't indicate that there had been foul play or that something else had gone on. She had shattered her pelvis when she fell, and those are the injuries that ultimately killed her. Um, So, yeah, people love to speculate, which I get, but there's really not much evidence for that. Uh, In non-spooky appearances, Peg's story and its tragic end have shown up in all kinds of media as a sort of shorthand reference to the cruelty of Hollywood and its ability to destroy the lives of hopeful performers, but that doesn't really tell her whole story. She had a lot of other things going on. One of the things that sometimes gets brought up as uh, something that may have led her to feel quite despondent is that her husband, Robert, after they had divorced, got married again very quickly, but that marriage was very successful, and he actually kind of put his life together and was selling plays, and that she had learned that he was getting kind of successful, and that maybe had impacted her. There are also some discussions of of the fact that her moving around so much had led some of her friends to be in a sticky position uh, in terms of, like, she had rented rooms with them or apartments with them, and then she had to to leave, and they were left kind of holding the bag, and she felt very guilty about it. Like, there there are a lot of things that go into a person's mental makeup that are not always as simple as she tried something and it didn't work, and then everything fell apart. Even though she was still very young when she died, she had already had a very lengthy and complex life and career. So mm-hmm. I wanted to give her a little more attention rather than just being like a two-line story about a failed starlet, which isn't really accurate at all. Uh, I'm doing a very quick, since this episode is a little longer, a very quick uh, postcard roundup. (laughs) Uh, The first is from our listener, Jessica, who sent us a beautiful postcard from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which continues to be a popular topic for the show and sometimes comes up on uh, our Unearthed episodes. Uh, it's a really cool postcard because it is a um, a blueprint diagram of the museum, which I love blueprints, so I love it. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, the other is from our listener. I believe it is Adrian. This is one of those ones that has fallen victim to being in the mail program, and it looks like possibly got rained on. Uh, but it is, it is one where she mentions that uh, because of our Iceland episode that Tracy did on correct me on my pronunciation, is it Jaime? I think it's more like Jaime. Yeah. Uh, She ended up booking a ferry to the island, even though she had not ever planned to go over there while she was traveling, and she ended up loving it and thought it was amazing. So thank you to Tracy. She sent us a lovely postcard of what appears to be a puffin with a bunch of fish in its mouth, and it is super cute. So (laughs) thank you to both those listeners. Also, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We can also be found all over social media under the handle Missed in History, and mistinhistory.com is where to find us at our home online, our website where the entire show archives live and uh, show notes for any of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on. So come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and subscribe to Stuff You Missed in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your media. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The wait is almost over. 
Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at USPS.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. 